This is my right A right given by God To live a free life To live in freedom Talking about look at um, Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 14. Galatians 2, 1 through 14. We're going to spend most of our, uh, I mean 11 through 14, excuse me, most of our day just on those four verses. Like I said, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to just dive in. Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 and 13 read this. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is a fascinating verse. I don't know if you are picking up on some of the things that are happening in, the, in between the lines there, but it's almost like Peter has given us, I mean, Paul at least, has given us a kind of a, a, a little taste of some little argument that happened in history that we didn't get to see before. We, we get like a little taste of some um, ancient Grecan uh, reality television. You know, we get to see this little fight between Peter and Paul. And so Paul said he confronted Peter to his face. Did you see that? I need to tell you that I don't think that Paul meant by that what you and I would mean by that today. This isn't a snap, I know you didn't kind of a thing. Um, it, it literally just means that Paul um, confronted Peter to his face. He didn't gossip about him. He didn't go behind his back and, and kind of share some opinions over here to this group and then go over here and share some opinions on this group. He didn't, he didn't blog about Peter. He didn't send Peter an ugly email. He just confronted him to his face. He did it the right way, the manly way, the biblical way. Take it face to face. Amen? Amen? Hey, can I just preach a little sermon here? Just a little free one. You already know what I'm going to say, don't you? Don't gossip. Amen? Amen? Please, please, please don't gossip. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a church where there was gossip. If you're not raising your hand, then you're lying, okay? <laughs> I don't want there ever to be gossip at Missy O'Day, so please don't ever gossip. Never. Just Take it to them face-to-face, -face, always. It's always better if you do that. I know confrontation is difficult, but does sending an email make it less difficult? No, it doesn't. You'll pour over that email for three days, and then you'll send it, and then you'll wait for a response for three more days. Just take it to their face. No gossip. Be a man or a strong woman and take it to the face. Amen? Amen. That's all I got. That was free. <laughs> that was free tonight. Moving right along. Back to Galatians. And so Peter took it to his face. He said, I have to defend the gospel of freedom. Why? Because Peter acted in a way that was hypocritical to the gospel. I want you to understand this. Not hypocritical to morality. He wasn't being a hypocrite to some moral thing. He was being hypocritical to the gospel. And so Paul said, I had to confront him to his face. I had to confront him and even in front of other people in order to defend the gospel. Because if I didn't, the gospel would be destroyed, and, and Christ would have died for nothing. In fact, Martin Luther, in his commentary on this, says this. It says, Peter did not say so, 
But his example said quite plainly that the observance of the law must be added to faith in Christ if men are to be saved. So from Peter's example, the Gentiles could not help but draw the conclusion that the law was necessary unto salvation. And if this error had not or had been permitted to pass unchallenged, if Paul didn't say something to him, Christ would have lost out altogether. Do you see how strong Luther is saying that? Peter was acting, he was just being, he was just being wrong. He was acting bad. He was separating from the Gentiles. And Paul said, I got to defend it. Now, I need to kind of tell you a story to make sure we're all on the same page about what's really happening here. The story comes from the book of Acts chapter 10. I'm, I'm going to just tell you some of the story um, to save us time. It's the whole chapter 10. And, and, and chapter 10 starts like this. There's a man named Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, and he's in his house. He, he's fearing God. He loves God, and he's praying. You might have heard the story before. He's praying, and while he's praying, he gets a vision. And the vision says, I want you to send some people to this man named Peter's house who lives by the sea. And I want you to go get Peter and bring him to you. And when you bring him, then I'll tell you what to do next. At the same time that Cornelius is praying and having that vision, Paul's at his house praying too. And he has kind of a trippy vision. Let me, let me show you what he has. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced anything like this, but watch. Peter went up on his roof to pray. And he became hungry. Anyone ever got hungry while they're praying? Every time I pray, I get hungry. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and he wanted something to eat. So while they, I don't know who they are, maybe he's got servants, maybe he's got buddies, were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Wow, that's big. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what a trance is. I'm just assuming it's a big deal. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that you'll, if you like create a New Year's resolution, you're going to read the whole Bible. You'll read Genesis, and that's exciting. There's blood, there's gore, there's sex. It's all kinds of good stuff. You get to Exodus, more blood, more gore, more exciting stuff. You get to Leviticus, you're just falling asleep, right? Because like you can't eat a two-hoofed animal, you can't eat a reptilian, alien. You know, you can't eat these kinds of things. And so you can't eat um, animals, you can't eat pigs, you can't eat reptiles, and you can't eat certain fowl from the air. Well, Peter's having this vision, and there's pigs, and there's reptiles, and there's birds on this sheet. And this is what happened ne next. There came a voice to him that said, Arise, Peter, kill, and eat. Go get some food. You, you're hungry. Remember, he was hungry. Go get you some. And Peter said, By no means, Lord. So now we know who the voice was. It's Jesus. And he says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter always does this. Always. Jesus told him to do something, and Peter said, no, uh no way, not me, right? Remember this? Jesus said, you're going to betray me. No, not me. I'll never betray you. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. No, don't wash my feet. You can never wash my feet. <laughs> it's like he, you think he would have learned his lesson. Jesus says, go kill and eat, and he goes, no, not me. I've never eaten any unclean animal. Then the voice came to him again and said, um, what God has made clean, do not call unclean, do not call common. And this happened three times, so Peter just doesn't get it. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, as soon as he was done praying, there was a knock on his door, and guess who it was? It was the two guys from Cornelius' house. They said, Peter, the Lord told us to come get you. And Peter, and Paul, and Peter was like, I, I don't know what's going on today, but something's going on. I'm just going to go with you. He goes with these two men, and he enters into Cornelius' house. Now, at this time, no Jew was allowed to eat any of this food. No Jew was allowed to even enter into a Gentile's home. You're not supposed to touch a Gentile. These are, these are unclean people. And in fact, here's what happened when, when Peter gets to Cornelius' house. 
He stood outside, he talked with them for a little bit, and then he went in, and when he went in, he found that there were many Gentiles gathered in his house. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful, there's that key word, unlawful, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me, even just a few moments ago, (laughs) that I should not call any person common or unclean. So what does that got to do with our story? If anyone should know better, it's Peter. Don't you think? Peter was taught in an unforgettable way that the Gentiles are not unclean. I mean, God put him in a trance, (laughs) made him eat reptiles, (laughs) gave him a vision, gave him some visitors, and then while Peter was there, I think I forgot to say this, while Peter was there, he preached the gospel to Cornelius' whole house. They all got saved and started started, um, preaching in tongues or speaking in tongues. So Peter saw that the Holy Spirit descended upon the Gentiles, and he, at that moment, decided God is opening the gospel to all the nations. In fact, he told all the Jews, look, this is what happened. God's God's letting the Gentiles come in. So Peter, of all people, should know better. So why is it that when these certain legalistic men came in into Peter's church, he started not eating with the Gentiles. That's what it says. It says he separated from the Gentiles. Why did he do that? Why did he cave in to these legalists? Paul tells us he he did it out of fear. Did you see that? Out of fear. Here's this disease to please. Again, you see see it in the Bible? People have a disease to please, and he's afraid of these legalistic gentlemen, (laughs) and he's caving in to their wishes. Even Peter gets sucked into this plague of needing to please. Paul goes on to say this. He says, um, fearing these men, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray. Why is that a big deal? Because Barnabas is a partner with a guy named Titus who was a Gentile who was uncircumcised. Remember last week he was at that conference and they were debating on whether or not they were going to cut him and they, he, got, he, got off, he got off, right? So Barnabas is best friends with Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. And when these legalistic guys came into their church, both Peter and Barnabas pulled away from the Gentiles. Can you imagine this? Say yes. Thank you. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you don't understand. So let me tell you this. In this period Eating with another person is a big deal. This is a, uh, this is a, a, a very much a culinary culture. You knew that, right? That for, it would be like, I'm not going to call Jeremy for a while and have you know, hot wings because I'm mad at him. That's, that's not what's happening here. They're pulling away and not, it's, this is like high school lunch. You know, you can't sit at our table anymore. This is, this is the kind of culture they have. And so Peter and Barnabas has come over here and sat by the legalists while the Gentiles were over there and they were just ignoring them and separating from. Can you imagine how it would feel if you were a Gentile? It wouldn't feel very good. Do you see how legalism is so infectious and contagious? Peter just went right back to the legalistic law and Barnabas went with him and they left their friends. They left their new convert friends over there at the other table in the lunchroom. It kind of frustrates me. Here's what's interesting. It seems as if Peter was more concerned with the conscience of the legalist than he was with the conscience of the Gentiles. Do you know what I'm saying? Like Peter obviously had to make a choice at this moment, and he chose not to upset the conscience of the legalistic folks. Paul, he's more upset about upsetting the conscience of the Gentiles. 
I wonder, where are you in, in that paradigm? Like, have you ever been caught in a situation like that? Where you've got someone saying, you can't, you must, you need, and then you've got maybe a new believer or a young believer over here. Where do you normally bend? Do you bend with the legalists and don't dance? <laughs> or do you go out with the new convert, convert and go dancing? You, do you know, have you, raise your hand if you've ever been in a situation like that. I don't know about you, but I find myself in situations like that all the time. Well, we think of this. I'm like, well, I don't think this, and, and I want these people. I'm always, for me personally, I'm always thinking about the new believer or the non-believer or the seeker. I'm always asking myself, how do they feel right now? Do you know what I mean? Say, say yes. Someone say yes. Okay, I'm, I'm alone up here. I, I'm always looking out for them. Like if there's some guy up here, you know, some legalistic guy ranting about how tattoos are from the devil, and believe me, I've been in a church in a conversation that did just that. I just want to confront him to his face and say, you're stupid. The tattoos are okay. Show me in the Bible. It makes me so mad. I just want to go get a big tattoo, you know, a big honking one right there on my neck. Just start preaching the gospel. That's what I want to do. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation like that. Just my wife is going to let me get one, I think. I'm just going to get a tattoo next week. Now, I, I served as a youth pastor at about uh, three, three or four churches in my life. And at one particular church, I had a girl, a teenage girl in my youth group who was a, da- a dancer. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to, she was new, a new believer. She was just now starting to trust Jesus. And I was trying to teach her that God gave her the gift of dance. And that dance could be used to glorify Christ. She didn't have to dance in a bad way. She could dance in a, in a good way. So I invited her to do an interpretive dance to a worship song in church. You know where this is going, don't you? I didn't know where it was going. I had no idea what would happen. I just thought it was a good idea. But you can imagine how the congregation responded as soon as she kicked her leg in the air. It was like someone sucked all the air out of the room. Have you ever felt that? It's like, I, can't, I, I, I was so sweaty, and, and, and there were just blank stares and arm cr- I had a ton of emails in my inbox before I ever got home. And I don't know if anyone said anything to her. I hope they didn't. But they sure said a lot to me. And every, every email I read, I just couldn't stop thinking about that girl who was pouring her heart and soul out there in that stuffy little room for Jesus. And she was worshiping because I, I had coached her. I said, this is for Jesus. This is not for anybody but Jesus. You do this for Jesus. She got it. You know, she was worshiping. She got it. And they didn't. And I wanted to defend her. And it makes me mad. Doesn't it not make you mad? One commentator by the name of Morris, he comments, I think kind of sarcastically here. He says, it's curious. <laughs> Nobody seems to have recalled that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. <laughs> publicans would be riffraff, fringe which can scarcely mean that Jesus himself conformed to that strict Jewish practice. So what he's saying here is, how did this get so out of hand? Jesus came, he died for sins, he resurrected, um, the freedom of the gospel, he even put, put Peter in a trance and you know, let them eat reptiles, and then all of a sudden, these guys come in with their snooty noses, and they say all of a sudden you can't eat with them, you can't sit by them. What in the world is going on in this place? Don't, do you see what's happening? How come someone didn't just say, hello, what did Jesus do, you know? He ate with sinners and publicans. What are you guys doing? Can someone please tell me why it is that within Christendom, we always get divided over stupid things? Are you with me? I mean, I'm mad about this. We always get divided on things like dancing or eating and drinking or dressing. 
the way you dress or the movies you watch or the music you listen to or the paint that you decide to paint the fellowship hall, you know? Why do people get bent out of shape about that? Someone please tell me, why? I mean, it's like, and it's not just that we get bent out of shape about it. It's not just that we get divided over it. It's that whoever it is that's so centered on that thing, it's the world to them. You know what I mean? They're so passionate about it. You cannot paint a wall red. (laughs) I don't understand it. Why is it that it's so common? Legalism is so common. It's the stereotype, is it not, of church? Everyone knows you get inside that church, you're going to get all bent out of shape about the music you listen to. Been out of shape about the skull that you have on your shirt or the tattoo that you have on your ankle or the bumper sticker that you have on your car of Dave Matthews Band. You know what I mean? Why? Here's the deal. I want to know, why is that the stereotype of Christians? Shouldn't the stereotype be the gospel? Then Christians preach grace too much. (laughs) Shouldn't the stereotype be love? Seems to me like Jesus said that. The world will know we are Christians by our love. Didn't he say that? But instead, the world knows we're Christians because we have picket signs and because we don't like your music and we don't like your voting policies and we don't like Walmart. (laughs) We get sucked into so many stupid things. Here's the bottom line. Legalism is stupid. It's just stupid. Here's what what, uh, Martin Luther says. You have no idea what danger there is in customs and ceremonies. They so easily tend to error in works. And what Luther always means when he says works is works righteousness, this, this works salvation. So Luther's saying these customs and these traditions, they so easily make people feel like they're high and mighty and they look down their nose, look, I'm better than you because I don't listen to Dave Matthews. Martin Luther added this. He says, to eat and to drink or not to eat and not to drink is immaterial. But to make the deduction that if you eat, you sin, and if you abstain, you are righteous, that's just wrong. Basically, what he's saying is intellectually stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Paul says, what you put inside of your mouth is going to come out on the other end. It has nothing to do with your soul. It's what's in your heart that matters. So why are we going to get in a pickle about whether or not you eat a certain animal or whether or not you drink a certain beverage or whether or not you listen to a certain music? It's what's in your soul, in your heart that matters and what comes out of your mouth that matters more than what comes in your mouth. Amen? Someone give me an amen. I'm preaching up here. All right. Well, I better go on. I really wanted to spend the whole day on just these verses. Who's with me? I mean, I just want to start prancing around, start preaching against the legalists, you know? Why are they like that? Why do they get away with it? Let's keep going. Galatians 2, 14. Paul says this, but when I saw their conduct, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, I want to stop there because I just think this is Huge. I don't know if you know this or not, but that is a ginormous verse. It's larger than life. Let me tell you why. Paul says, I noticed that their conduct, their behavior, the way they were acting was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's huge. Because that means that the gospel is the kind of thing that has a step to it. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's, there's a way in which you step to the, there's a step, there's a cadence, there's a, there's a cadence, there's a rhythm, you know, there's a way that you walk in the gospel. You have to walk in step. You got to walk in cadence. Come on, who's with me? You got to have a little rhythm when you walk in the gospel. Keep going. You got you to gotta step up, you know? The Greek word is, is actually ortho walking, 
ortho, it's not ortho walking, it's ortho something else, but I can't pronounce that word. So ortho walking. Ortho means to straighten, right? Or if you've ever had braces, you know what ortho means. <laughs> you've gone to the orthodontist and he's <laughs> straightened those teeth out. You've been to orthopedic surgery, you know, you got your hips, your back, your neck straightened. You get, you get the idea. So, so what Paul is saying here is there, there's a way in which we walk in step with the gospel that's straight, that, that, that's not crooked. It's, it's got a rhythm, it's got a cadence, and it's a straight walk. What is a gospel walk and what is a crooked walk? You see what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying because you've heard this all your life, that you have to walk on that narrow road and you've got to behave and you've got to be good or you'll fall off and go to hell. <laughs> but Paul's saying something completely different here. He's saying we have to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. That's a different thing. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is how do we keep in step with the gospel? Do you, do you know how? <laughs> do you want to know how? Glad you asked. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. There's a way in which you walk in step in rhythm and cadence with the gospel. The first thing you have to understand is that the gospel is a truth. That's a quote. You know, the gospel is a truth. So Paul says he walks in the truth of the gospel. Um, so a truth has claims about it. It has a set of claims. Gravity is a truth, right? And, and gravity's set of claims is what goes up must come down. Amen. Preach it. Preach it, Charles. What goes up comes down. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not, does it? <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> if you run outside and you fall, it doesn't matter. I don't believe in gravity. Well, you're going down. It has a way of doing that. It drags you down. So you have to know that the gospel is a truth, and because it's a truth, it has a set of claims that, whether you believe them or not, are taking an effect in your life. Does that make sense? Let me tell you what those claims are, because you're probably wanting to know. Here's the claims of the gospel. First, that you are weak and sinful. The gospel is saying that. There's no need for Jesus to die on the cross if this isn't true. You are weak and sinful. Someone say amen. amen. Okay. Amen. Secondly, you are constantly seeking to control your weakness and sinfulness by being your own savior, i.e. self-improvement. Raise your hand if that's true. So you know you're weak, you know you're sinful, and you're constantly trying to fix that. You're constantly trying to self-improve. Point three, you can't. <laughs> you will always fall short of God's law. Someone give me an Amen. You can't. You always fall down. Number four, God's law was fulfilled by Christ. He was perfect for you so that you can be acceptable to God. Let's move right on to point five. You are now completely acceptable to God. Amen? Amen. If you believe in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, you are now completely acceptable to God because you can't fix yourself. Jesus fixed you. Number six, even though you are still very weak and sinful, which sounds just like point one, so point seven is, and repeat. So what does walking in step with the gospel look like? It looks like this. I'm a sinner, and I'm weak, and I always hate that about myself, <laughs> and I want to fix it, so I'm going to try to fix it. Uh-oh, what's happening? I'm starting to get crooked. I'm starting to come over here trying to fix things, when all of a sudden, now I'm not ortho anymore. I'm crooked -o. <laughs> And we have to remember, wait a minute, I can't. So I'm just going to walk in faith that Jesus has done it all, and I'm acceptable in Christ. I feel better now. Thank you, Lord. That's how you walk in step with the gospel. Here's what Timothy Keller says. The gospel, this gospel truth that we're talking about, is radically opposed to the assumptions of the world. But since we live in the world, we've embraced many of the world's assumptions. And Christian living is therefore a continual realignment, a, a continual orthopedic process, if you are catching my drift. 
um, of, of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. So we live in a world that says you can do better. You can try harder. You can be good enough. You can be smart enough. You can fix this. You can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We live in America for crying out loud, so it's all about this performance treadmill of I've got to measure up, I've got to be, um, I've got to climb that ladder, I can't be stagnant. That's not, that's crooked. And so the Christian life is always taking the, what the world says and says, no, 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 I've not depend upon me, I'm not going to come over here and read that self-help book, I'm going to come over here and trust in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. The law says do, and the gospel says done, it's finished. You've, you already have been accepted. So just walk in that faith. Walk in that faith. Walk in that faith. Keep in line with the gospel. Jerry Bridges says, we are saved by grace. Amen? Amen. Actually, Paul said that. Jesus said that. <laughs> but we are living by the sweat of our own performance. Is that true? We are. Moreover, we are always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life is basically up to us. Our commitment can't tell you how many sermons I've heard about that, our discipline and our zeal, and with some help from God along the way. The realization that my daily relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Jesus Christ instead of my own performance is a very freeing and joyous experience. Amen? I'm free. I feel free about that. I would much rather take Jesus's record than try to improve my own. But it is not meant to be a one-time experience. This truth needs to be reaffirmed daily. Every day, we've got to walk in that cadence. We've got to walk in that truth. So I want to have a discussion question, and that is, how do we walk in straight step with the gospel? How do you walk in straight step with the gospel? I've just talked about it for a while. I even did a dance up here. So now it's your turn to talk in the table. How do you think you're going to walk in straight step with the gospel? I've got a song to play. Let's move, let's move on to the next, next verse. Listen to this. Uh, this is interesting. Paul, in a sense, is going to exhibit or model for us how you always walk in step with the gospel and don't get crooked. Paul never gets crooked, I don't think. Paul's always in the gospel. He's so saturated in the gospel that he eats, drinks, breathes, sneezes gospel. I, you know, here's my prayer. I just hope that we all can saturate ourselves and marinate ourselves in the gospel the way Paul marinated himself in the gospel. Amen. I think we just need to prune up in the sauce of the gospel, you know? Let's get saucy, you know? Prune up in there and get all pruned up from just marinating in it because Paul never, he never gets off track. And the example that I want to show you is that even when he's correcting Peter, when he's rebuking Peter, he doesn't use law to rebuke him. He uses gospel to rebuke him. You can see how easy it would be to be, to be legalistic about the gospel, does that make sense? You've got to walk in step with the gospel. You've got to be in step with the gospel. Step up, step up, step up. In cadence, in cadence, do it right. You can see how that would happen. It'd be an easy trick. But Paul doesn't even let that happen to him. He says, you are not walking in step with the gospel. And instead of saying, you're not doing it right, you need to try harder and do better and be gooder about walking in step with the gospel, he says, let me just give you some gospel. <laughs> I love it. Let's look at it. He says this, I saw the conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how then can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you're a Jew and you get to live like a Gentile, here you get to live like you're not a Jew. Here you get to live outside of the Jewish law. You don't have to follow the Jewish law. You get to live like a Gentile who doesn't follow the Jewish law. If you're a Jew and you get to act like a Gentile, live like a Gentile, why on earth would you make the Gentiles become Jews? and obey these laws and get circumcised and not eat these kinds of food. 
So what Paul has basically did, he didn't say, you messed up, Peter. You broke the rules of Jesus' gospel. You're not obeying Jesus' commandments. Shame on you. Instead, what he says is, okay, you're not walking in step with the gospel, so let me remind you the gospel. You've been set free, so why would you go back into that slavery? You've been set free from the need to please, so you don't have to care what these people think about you. Forget about these legalistic people. You only have to care about what Jesus thinks about you, and you've been pre-approved. So walk in step with the gospel. You don't have to worry about them, and so you can be friends with them. You can eat with them. See what I'm saying? He's not saying, do it. You're wrong. Shame on you. I'm not your friend. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> he just says, don't forget the gospel. It set you free. It's going to set them free. Forget about the legalistic people. Timothy Keller says like this. Paul's approach makes all the difference. Paul did not simply say, you're breaking the rules, even though Peter was. He was breaking the rules of the gospel. Jesus already came to him in a vision and told him the rule. You can eat reptiles. But he said, you've forgotten the gospel. You're not in step with it. You got crooked. It's time to realign. I like that. Timothy goes on to say this, Keller. Uh, Christians tend to motivate others with guilt. Someone give me a what, what, if that's true. Christians tend to motivate others with guilt. We tend to say, you would do this if you were really committed Christians, indicating that we are committed and all that is needed is for others to become as good as we are. This is why so many churches quench the motivation of people for ministry. I'm so glad he said that because isn't it true? It's so true. When you motivate people out of guilt, what do you get? Is it good? <laughs> What happens when you motivate someone out of guilt? If you say to them, well, you need to do better, are they going to? I would say most of the time, no. Most of the time, they're not going to rise up to, to, to meet your expectations. Maybe they have the disease to please, so maybe you might actually have a little bit of pull on them, so they'll try, but will they do it out of gospel joy? No. What typically will happen is they'll, oh, okay, and they'll try harder, but they'll continue to fail and continue to feel your penetrating eyes upon the back of their skull. That's how it normally works. If you walked up to someone and said, you know, that's very immoral what you're doing. That's not a very Christian thing to do. How do you think they're going to respond? Oh, thank you so much for telling me that. I didn't know. I thought it was okay. <laughs> Is that how they're going to respond? No. Typically, they'll flash a hand sign, I imagine, and never come back to your church again. I've seen it before. <laughs> I've seen that before. I've seen people come into church. They weren't married. The guy says, you need to get married. It's like, they're just visiting. Leave them alone, okay? If they keep coming, then you have a right to speak into their life. Right now, you don't have a right to speak into their life. Shut up. Let them hear the gospel. Oh, they weren't going to hear the gospel anyway, probably. They're probably going to hear guilt. But what happens if you do gospel? What happens if you motivate with the gospel instead of guilt? See, if you motivate with guilt, you get defensiveness. If you motivate with the gospel, there's no defense against the gospel. Let's say you give them guilt and they actually look up to you and they want to please you. And so what they end up doing is they try in guilt, they fail, and then they feel guilty again, and then they try some more, and then they fail, and then they feel guilty again, and they try some more, and they fail, and then isn't it true they eventually just give up? And I've known people who just give up on Christianity altogether. I don't even want to be a Christian anymore because you guys make me feel like such a loser. Raise your hand if I'm right. Keller's right. So many churches quench our motivation for people for ministry. They're not even going to serve. They're not going to give. They're not going to have any joy because they feel so much guilt. Tulian 
Chavigian. He's a pastor at a Presbyterian church in Florida. He says, the law serves us by showing us how to love God and others, but we fail to do this every day. And when we fail, it is the gospel which brings comfort by reminding us that God's infinite approval of us doesn't depend on our keeping of the law, but on Christ's keeping of the law for us. And guess what? That makes me want to obey him even more. Isn't that true? Not less. People will actually do more when you tell them less what to do and more what Christ has already done. Amen? You don't tell them to try harder because they know they can't. Tell them that Jesus paid it all, and I don't know about you, but that motivates me. C.H. Spurgeon said this, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle, meaning no big deal. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. I've been there. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loves me so much and sought my good. That's the difference between legalism and gospel. That's the difference between walking in crooked law or in straight gospel. It says, I, it motivates you. A lot of you right now are asking this question. Well, where's works? Come on, give me some works. I need to do something, right? Well, that's what you do. You're motivated by the gospel, not by guilt. The law exists to make you feel guilty. That's what Paul says. As a matter of fact, in the next few verses, he's going to say this even more clearly on the doctrine of justification. The law exists to beat you, to beat you into submission, to beat you into guilt, to make you fall on your face. And then the gospel says, get up, get up. I love you. I've accepted you. Let's go. And it, doesn't that motivate you? I've said this before. I'll say it again. Preaching law doesn't make people fall at Jesus' feet. I've never seen a big, hairy, truck-driving man come into a sermon, and that guy say, you should stop looking at pornography. It's gonna, you know, you're going to hell. And then they're like, oh, you're right. I should. But I have heard people preach the gospel. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter where you've been, whose bed your boots been under, what you've done. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And I've seen big, hairy, tattooed, covered, truck-driving men falling on their face crying because of grace. They don't cry because of law. They get mad about law. They break because of grace. Am I right? This is why Paul says, I think, don't you know that it is the kindness of God that brings us to repentance? It's the kindness of God. It's not the law of God. You need to straighten up. Sorry. <laughs> it's I love you and I forgive you. Oh, wow. Well, I need to repent then. I'm, I, 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 just, like, just like Spurgeon said, when I thought God was mad at me, then I just wanted to make him matter. <laughs> but once I realized he loved me, I, I was embarrassed that I would ever do something to someone who loves me that much. In Romans 2, that's what Paul says. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same kinds of judgment and things. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? His mercy is not meant to say, whatever, you know, it's all good. His mercy brings us to our knees, brings us to the feet of Jesus. So here's a discussion question. How could you motivate yourself and other Christians less with guilt and more with gospel? What I want us to do is take this principle that we just kind of covered here and actually bring it home. You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to do it to yourself? And how are you going to do it to your 
peers? How do you motivate out of gospel rather than guilt? I know, I know, I know what you guys are thinking. You guys are still wrestling with this, yeah, but, but, but. And I mentioned in the first couple of sermons, right, every time someone preaches grace, every time a pastor is preaching the gospel and grace, you always have the buts. You always have the but, 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 wait, but what about, yeah, uh. You can't go telling people that they're, they don't have to do anything or else they're going to go party and they're going to ruin their life. And I don't actually ever see a single example of that, to be honest with you. I mean, I, and not if they really understand the gospel and if they really get grace, they're not going to put themselves into that kind of slavery. So I just want to conclude by, by saying a few, a few things. Um, I'm doing this on purpose because Paul's doing this on purpose because he hasn't said anything about what to do yet. He's just defending and fighting for the gospel freedom, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, and don't you get anything. It's Jesus plus nothing gospel freedom. It's the free grace gospel of Jesus Christ. But what about, no, free grace, God, but yet, no, just get this into your head. Why are you so afraid? Don't be afraid of the gospel. Don't be afraid of the good news. It's good, okay, it's good. Don't, you can trust it. And I think that Paul is just fighting for this and letting us marinate in this. He's going to get at the end of the book about, you know, the fruits of the Spirit and about the way we should behave. It's going to come. But it's never going to come after that plus sign, okay? It's always going to be Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You can't have anything on there. So I know you're nervous and I know you're scared and, and, and I, know it's, I know it's part of where, where you are, um, but don't be. Just marinate, get prune up in the sauce of the gospel, okay? And let that just infiltrate you. And I promise you, I promise you, by the time we get to chapter five, you're not gonna be asking that question anymore because you're gonna be saying, I once was wondering what I'm supposed to do, but now I'm saying, I don't care what you think, I'm doing it because I just love Jesus and Jesus loves me and I'm full of his grace and mercy that I wanna bestow it on others. And all of a sudden now I'm motivated to do that. And the Bible says we're supposed to love the poor. I don't really always love the poor. But you know what? Now that I'm saturating myself in the gospel, I can't help it. I just want to serve the poor. The Bible says we're supposed to love our enemies. I hate my enemies. But you know what? Now that I'm soaking in the gospel, I kind of want to love them. And when we get to the end, you're not going to be like, tell me what I'm supposed to do. What about those hard things? You're going to say, oh, I got it now. I get it. The, the, law only makes, the law only trips me up. The gospel makes me want to. I get it now. I promise you. That's what you should. And if not, we'll just do Galatians again, Okay. So here's a question I want to ask. Jesus is irresistible, is he not? Why? Why is Jesus so irresistible? Why was Jesus so irresistible? Why was he so irresistible that a prostitute would throw caution to the wind and walk into a Pharisee's house and wash his feet with her long black hair? That's pretty irresistible. She doesn't care what anyone thinks. She just wants to worship and wash his feet. Why is Jesus that irresistible? Is it because... He told people that they need to try harder and do better? I don't think so. Is it because he promoted a, a yoke that only few could carry? I don't think so. Is it because he preached so many sermons about how you're not good enough and you need to straighten up? I don't really remember any of those sermons, to tell you the truth. Why is he so irresistible? Could it be because he preached grace? Could it be because he extended love and mercy to the cripple, the leper that no one would touch, the sinners? I think it is. You know, why are you so attracted to Jesus? Why do you think Jesus is irresistible? Is it because he's told you, you know, you better come <laughs> or you're going to hell? No, that's not, I mean, hell has nothing to do with it when you find Jesus irresistible. Am I right? You found him irresistible because he first loved you, right? That's what the Bible says. We love him because he first loved us. 
So it has nothing to do with law. It has nothing to do with legalism. It has everything to do with grace. And that's what's drawn us to Jesus Christ. Brenda Manning, one of my favorite writers, he says this vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap, but it is free. And as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Do you understand what he's saying there? The grace is so powerful that those, you know, Bible scholars or whatever, those the orthodox, you know, what, but, but, but people, it's a banana peel and it slips, they slip on it. Or it's a fairy tale to us who are adults and we know we have to do something, right? <laughs> grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. But grace is enough. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. Grace is enough. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. That's the good news of the gospel. So, so I'd like to conclude by encouraging you. While you're wrestling with these butts, just keep in step with the gospel. Amen? Amen? Just keep in line with the gospel because it is enough. Because it is by grace that you have been saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. Just have faith in Jesus and the rest, those butts, will take care of themselves. Amen? At this point, we're going to take communion.